we're expanding On Being's Civil Conversations Project to be more of a resource for families and communities, for the work of starting new conversations where we live and building common life for this century. Because the point of speaking together differently is to live together differently. Go to civilconversationsproject.org and find audio, video, even a starter guide. Again, that's civilconversationsproject.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. When I told people I was going to have Glenn Beck on this show, some reacted badly. But I've been conversing with him privately this year about what it will take to heal the divides and misunderstanding among Americans. He is a lightning rod of our ruptures, but for several years, he's also been acknowledging his own role in the damaged state we're in. Here he is with Megyn Kelly on Fox in 2014. When you think back on your time here, how will you remember it? How do you remember it now? I remember it as an awful lot of fun and that I made an awful lot of mistakes and I wish I could go back and um, and be more um, uniting in my language because I I think I played a role, unfortunately, in uh, helping tear the country apart. Glenn Beck is a complicated person. So, after all, are we all. Speaking with him brings home the reality that if we're going to create the world we want our children to inhabit, we're going to have to find ways to hold more complexity peaceably and probably uncomfortably just to soften what is possible between us. We need to be ready to let others surprise us, let them repent, offer forgiveness, and ask hard questions of our own place in this moment. This doesn't happen often in politics, but it is essential in life and must be part of common life, too. As part of our ongoing Civil Conversations project, I draw out Glenn Beck in this generosity of spirit. We have to start believing the best in each other instead of expecting the worst. And I'm guilty. I, I hate to say that because I can't imagine how many people in your audience just rolled their eyes and went, you've got to be coming from Glenn Beck. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Glenn Beck now broadcasts on The Blaze, a multi-platform news and entertainment network that he founded. His childhood in Washington state was marked by addiction in the adults around him and his mother's death when he was a teenager by apparent suicide. He rose to national popularity and prominence in radio and then live television in the glory days of cable news at CNN and Fox News. You know, it's interesting and it, this must be the interesting way you live, that people feel like they know you, right? I mean, Glenn Beck is a, is an, is a concept. <laughs> um, it's a really, it's both good and bad. I get credit for things that I never did and get blamed for things that I never did, uh, just depending on who I talk to. I mean, I was just thinking about it as I started to delve into preparing to talk to you as I do with every interview, but just that, again, like, you know, Glenn Beck is a concept, and then you start getting to know the, the human, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so I just want to start where I, I always start my interviews, whoever I'm talking to, um, sure. asking about the spiritual background of your childhood. And, and what I want to say to you is that, you know, sometimes 
I mean, everybody has a story. Sometimes it's a religious story, but I've also come to really have an expansive understanding of what that means. And boy, when I look at your childhood, I mean, your mother dying when you were a teenager. Um, I mean, there, there was so much hardness in that. And I, and I'm, I just want to say, I, I've got to think that that... <sighs> that was part of the spiritual background of your childhood and or overshadowed it or both? I think um, a couple of things. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, uh, you know, I, I, I had a, an encounter, at least I feel, with God when I was eight, mm. seven actually. And it actually kind of screwed me up um, quite a bit. Uh, later in life. And it wasn't until 40 that I actually gave up on on that. Um, I heard when I was seven uh, in my own head, um, what you do in life will be a pivot point. Mm. And I didn't understand it, but it was so clear and so different. And I, I don't even... I don't even remember why that, I mean, it was just bizarre. And then um, about four weeks before my mother died, I had another spiritual brush. I was walking by my mom whose hands were in the sink in the kitchen and I was in the hallway and I was walking by and, and um, I again heard a voice in my own head as clear as day, stop, go back kiss your mother and tell her you love her. She won't be here much longer. Hmm. And um, I didn't. I dismissed it. And uh, a few weeks later, she was, she was dead. Then that happened with my grandfather. And then that happened with a girl that I was dating in high school. Um, uh, she had a headache. And I, and I remember distinctly feeling, she, oh my gosh, she's got a brain tumor. I just knew it. And so I had a early on a brush with with the spirit. And then that voice that I heard when I was seven um, gave me an arrogance that was not good mm. and really screwed me up. Mm. That's how you took it. That's how you that's how you think you internalized it as an arrogance. Mm. No, I, I well I took it as a um I mean, between that and then, you know, I got into radio when I was 13. Yeah. And so when you're 13 and 14 years old and you're in, you know, Seattle market with some of the better people in the industry, yeah. and they say, my gosh, listen to this kid in front of you. Mm -hmm. Have you heard this kid? I mean, when he's 25, what is he going to be like? You start buying it. And so I just had this arrogance that um, I just, I knew I was going to make an impact. And... By the time I was 30, I was so screwed up that I was, you know, ready to repeat the mistakes of, of my mother's life. Hmm. Did you, um, you have a big intelligence and a huge curiosity. Did, I mean, you didn't go to college. Did you, did you think about going to college? Is that not a possibility for you? No, it was, there was nobody in my family that ever went to college, um, and we couldn't afford it. And it was not, I remember being in, I don't remember, Algebra 1 um, mm -hmm. and the first week in Algebra when I was, I don't know, ninth grade. And I remember raising my hand and I said, what am I ever going to use this for? Mm -hmm. 
And uh, the professor said, all kinds of stuff. And, and I said, uh-huh. all I know is that I need to know that, you know, 14 minutes before 8 is 46 minutes after the hour. That's all. I'll, everything <laughs> right. I do will be divisible right. by 60. So I, I don't need any of clock. this. You're on the I'm radio already clock. On the, yeah. I'm already on the clock. Yeah. You, so you you did kind of fast forward a minute ago. I mean, you, as you said, there was, there was addiction, alcohol um, in your family, and you have um, went into that. Um, you were very successful in radio. You've also said that you were suicidal by the 90s. Um, you know, you've said, I was a bad man. I was a deplorable human being. Did you get into recovery then in the in the late 90s? Is that... No. no. Oh, yeah, the late 90s, yeah. yes. Um, the mm-hmm. first time I battled depression was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have such um, empathy for people who are battling with depression. If mm-hmm. you've never really battled with um, chemical depression, you just don't understand. It's, it's, um, the world turns inside out. What, what is black turns white. What is reasonable... Um, to you is completely unreasonable to everybody else. And you get to this place yeah. to where you, you're like, I, you know, the world is a much better place. <laughs> and there are a lot of people that probably still would believe this, but the world would be a much better place without me in it. Yeah. And you start to believe that. That language you used a minute ago, pivot point, your life is full of those. It's, that's, a, that's language you use. And, um, and I think, you know, when I look at your story and at you, there's a lot of change. There's a lot of momentum. There's, there's a fair amount of conversion as, as part of your experience. Um, when, I, when I've talked to people about the fact that I was going to interview you and, mm. and, you know, when I read some of these articles that have been written, where's this, this skeptical edge? Well, now he's saying something different, but will he stay this way? Like when I look at your story, the sweep of it, you've never stayed the same way. No. Life is about change. Yeah. And, and so... So it seems to me, so you did go through this very dark period, and you you got into recovery. I mean, it seems to me that was a big pivot point for you, and it was kind of around the turn of the century. Is that right? Yeah, it was in the, uh, the mid-90s. I, I remember I turned 30, and I remember looking at the clock on my bedstand, and it was turning midnight in the old the old LED clock that the numbers would almost jump as you watch them. Mm. And, uh, and I watched it say 11.59, 11.59, and then it switched to 12. And I, I remember thinking, your whole life is going to change. And uh, I knew that it was, that what I had built was just unsustainable. It was just, uh, you know, lie to myself on top of lie to myself. And um, I, uh, I read a letter uh, right after that from Thomas Jefferson to Peter Carr. And it was about how um, Peter should learn, you know, this about mathematics and he should read these classics and uh, when languages he should learn these things. And and then it got to religion and the last part it said, uh, above all things, when it comes to religion, fix reason firmly in her seat and question with boldness even the very existence of God, for if there be a God, he must surely rather honest questioning over blindfolded fear. Mm. And that changed my life. <laughs> and still today is the most important thing 
uh, to me because I was going through recovery through the 12-step program, and I was examining myself, and I was really trying to... But there were things in my life that I, I wouldn't go. I just wouldn't look at, like my mother's suicide and everything else. I just... I, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wouldn't ask those questions. And, um, and so what changed? I, I decided that I didn't really know anything. I, 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 I don't know. There was um, uh, a humility that, that happened. I, I had been praying for God to humble me. And boy, don't ever pray for that because that one, there's like a big bell on the other side that rings and, somebody, and, and God's like, Somebody's praying for humility? Quick, dispatch somebody. Um, and so I was really humbled at that time. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't frightening for some reason anymore to admit that I didn't know anything. And I think part of that is because uh, I had become in a different way self-destructive. I, I, I didn't want to do radio anymore because it was just shallow and empty. And, uh, you know, just being a morning show DJ was just awful. And um, and uh, so I, I got on the air and somebody had said something. Well, you don't know anything. And, uh, you know, you're Mr. Perfect because my, my image at the time was Mr. Clean. Hmm. And uh, I said, you know, you don't really know anything about me because I've never let you in. But let me tell you who I am and why I know. And I laid it all out, and I, I said to my producer, as I turned off the mics, mark this day down on your calendar. This is the day that Glenn Beck ended his career. And um, that producer is still my executive producer, still with me. <laughs> what what year it, was that? It was and what, 95, 96. And that was on the air? You did that on the air? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I found that the most unexpected thing happened. People would stop me and write to me in times when we still got letters and say, you know, when you said what you said, I I can relate. Nobody knows this about me, but I'm carrying something. And I realized, oh, my gosh, we are all hiding from something. We all have something that we think we're a fraud on or if people only knew or something that I'm carrying around. I don't know what it is, but we all have it. And if we would just be honest with each other and just say, yeah, this is who I am, all of a sudden it loses all of its power. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it is ironic, as you say, because it was after that point that you became this huge public figure, right? Well, there was, there was you know, that's 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I actually think that I was, um, uh, you know, in 96, I, you know, I, I was still, uh, I was rough. If you listen to my shows in even 2000, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm LDS, so I'm a member of Mormon faith. And, and when you as a man are, are brought into what's called the priesthood and every man is a priest yeah, in, yeah. in my, in my faith, you know, the, the congregation votes on it. In fact, the whole, what's called a stake, the whole, you know, uh, I don't know what you would call it in, uh, the whole diocese votes on it. And I'm one of the only people that people raised their hand and went, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, you, and you came, we'll, we'll talk about this, but you came to, yeah. to Mormonism, to the, to the LDS church um, fairly later in life. It wasn't, you weren't born into that. No, 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 yeah. 1999. Yeah. 1999, I, I, after this, so after this period, yeah. 
So I went, you know, in, in mm-hmm. 96, I was just starting to, I put, took everything out and I said, okay, I, I, don't, I don't know anything. And so I, I went, because I couldn't afford college, I, I, went to a, um, I went to the Barnes & Noble and I assembled what I, what I like to call the library of a serial killer. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, I went in with the intention of who would argue with each other in philosophy? Who would argue with each other in religion? Who would argue with each other on whatever it is? And, um, and so, you know, I was putting a library together with, uh, you know, Mein Kampf and Alan Dershowitz and, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, crazy. And my philosophy was, if you can go to the extremes and you can go to people that, that have, should have nothing in common, if you find any point of connection, then there's truth in that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's led me to things like, um, that I think is very true, uh, horrible to say out loud, but that's what I do for a living. Um, Jesus and Hitler had one thing in common, and that is they could both look somebody in the eye who was hungry or in despair mm-hmm. and say, I will feed you. And it's important to listen to what their solution is, but most people don't. And one will lead you to an evil path and one will lead you to a good path. But it is exactly the same entry point. <laughs> and we get to um, <laughs> Glenn Beck. Are you regretting, you regretting this yet? <laughs> no, but I just, you know, I'm just, there's so much to talk about. But so, I mean, let's fast forward. And go from there, go backwards and forwards from here. 2014, you've said versions of this to other people, but I I just especially really liked just this short clip of you with Megyn Kelly in 2014, and she was asking you about your time at Fox, and you said, and I think you really surprised her, um, I, I played a role, unfortunately, in helping tear the country apart. So, you know, between, you know, this 1996-1999, your personal pivot point in 2014, you you went to CNN. You you started the Glenn Beck show in 2000, you got syndicated, you went to CNN, you went to Fox. You had 6.5 million listeners behind Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and Dave Ramsey by 2008. Talk about what you were seeing in your career in 2014. Um yeah, well, just, uh, can, I go, can I go back? Yes. Can I go back? Because this go is back really anywhere. This is this yeah. is important. Yeah. Um, um, to understand, um, I didn't want to go to Fox News. I turned them down three times. Mm. Um, I didn't want to go to headline news. In fact, I remember the only reason why I took it is because I believed the country was in real trouble. I had just spent three years saying there is a financial crash coming beyond description. And uh, this is happening now. I'm talking to Fox at the same time right. that the financial crisis is finally there. Yeah. And I, so I was convinced that the country is in real trouble. I still am. Uh, it's just more resilient than I thought it was. Hmm. And I got on and I, I had no idea, A, the power of Fox, B, the danger of doing 60 minutes live, unscripted, Every single day, kind of wild. Plus you a three radio wild. show. Yeah, yeah, and 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 doing it in a way that I thought would get people to watch, which it did. Mm-hmm. 
so I, I'm mixing mediums, which was dangerous, but I thought, oh, everybody will get it. Um, and then there was this mass pushback, and it wasn't good, and it just kind of pushed the wrong buttons in me, and I'm like, really? And I honestly thought uh, that, okay, I'm going to present this in a way that people will be able to watch and understand, and then somebody in the media will pick this up and go, wait a minute, there is, I don't believe Glenn Beck, but there is something here. There is this connection that he showed, and we looked it up, and it's true. Hmm. That never happened. Hmm. And so what, what happened was I took half the country and basically flipped them the bird. That wasn't smart. And this is On Being, today with Glenn Beck. You have also said in a Can 2000- we quote somebody else? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. We're talking about okay. you. I understand that this is not the side of the microphone you're happiest on. <laughs> yeah, let's quote somebody else. No, I hate that guy. I'm in control right. here, as you also understand. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you, you've, you, you've said a lot, and it's, here's another way that I feel like you can help take other people inside something they may not understand. You've said I did a lot of freaking out about Barack Obama, and that was, tr- you know, and you've been criticized for calling him. I mean, well, we won't even go through all that. You, you, no, you. I mean, you I know, understand yeah, what I've calling said. him racist. Blah blah. I don't. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to. I don't want to dissect that. That's been dissected. But when you say that, and I think you again, you are. You know, your audiences, people who you have been listening to, attending to, were freaking out about Barack Obama. And a lot of people don't understand that. And, and just well, and you, I, yeah, well, say ju- something about that, about what yeah, that is. Let me, let me just say this. This is why I have, and I've been begging the people on the right, how can you not have empathy for the people right now who are saying, Donald Trump is going to destroy America. We are going to be in, we're going to, he's going to have concentration camps. You were thinking that about Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. How can you not understand that somebody sees this guy who is much more vocal and has many more tendencies than the last guy? How can you call them crazy? You know, there are people, I'm, I'm finding it fascinating that at this moment where we could have profound understanding for one another and we can say, I know, I know, I know how you're feeling and don't make the mistake that I made. Don't do the things that we did. Well, nobody could be bad as you. Stop it. Hmm. Stop hmm. it. Hmm. Let's take this moment at time and say, Let's learn from the past. Let's not overreact and freak out. And believe me, I'm one of the I mean, you've heard me over the last, what, 18 months about Donald Trump. I'm warning of grave danger. This guy, this guy could go totalitarian on us. Mm. He could very well do that. He also may very well leave the Oval Office as a decent president. I don't know. I can't see the future. What we should be talking about is not uh, not people, not even events, but ideas. And the idea is 
No one person should ever make the American public, left, right, or all of us, this afraid. And I mean, so so this is another pivot point for you, I sense. And you know, Glenn, that you fear has been a big piece of your vocabulary, and you're you are you proudly uh, called yourself a catastrophist, and and you also understand the science of fear. You've written about this, you know, how our brains are are you know we're hardwired to respond to this, and I you know there is a lot in your writing and your work. Um, about groups, right? I mean, the book you wrote in 2016 about progressives and just these sweeping statements about groups of people at the same time. Hang on just a second. Yeah. Because I want to make sure really careful here. Okay. Did you read the book? Yeah. Okay. So it's about early 20th century American progressives, not just any progressive, but the ones who really understand what progressivism at its core, at its founding really is the difference between, uh, you know, a cattle and a rancher yeah. that a real early 20th century American progressive says we know better than the average guy. And so we'll make the decisions. I don't think that's the average progressive. I don't think that's what they are. I don't think they understand what an early 20th century progressive is. And so this was really mm-hmm. a history book to be able to say, this is that seed, and it's in both the Republican and the Democratic parties. Yeah, I, and I I hear you, and I and I believe you, and but I also think there are these sweeping statements that don't contain that subtlety. You know, like yeah. you know, this book will present a clear, concise, and documented picture of progressives as they really are: eugenicists, racists, misogynists, terrorists, and authoritarian tyrants. And it's it doesn't you know it doesn't qualify, and I just think and I don't think you disagree with this that this is one of the things that's gone terribly wrong on both sides that we throw these, these huge isms and these labels at each other. So so the problem the problem is is when we're trying to make, you know we we can't qualify every sentence, um, and you know I, I did a calculation uh, once. Because uh, I lost my, I lost my voice. My vocal cords went paralyzed, and and they said, you know, they could come back. They might not. And I, I, uh, I counted, uh, what was it, ten million words in the last X number of years <laughs> that I have uttered. You can't utter ten million words publicly and not uh, screw up. You're going to screw up. You're going to say things that you said poorly, you were wrong about, you regret, or were misconstrued, or, you know, it's just going to happen. We have to, we have to start believing the best in each other in ex- mm. instead of expecting the worst. And I'm, I'm guilty. I, I hate to say that because I can't imagine how many people in your audience just rolled their eyes and went, you've got to be <laughs> coming from Glenn Beck. Right. So I get that. I get that. I am not the me- I am. I'm the worst messenger since Paul. I get that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't mean to be the one. Just please take it. Pretend I'm somebody you like and re-listen to that. You can listen again and share this conversation with Glenn Beck through our website, onbeing.org. 
I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, as part of our ongoing Civil Conversations project, my guest is Glenn Beck. I've been conversing with him privately this year about what it will take to heal the divides and misunderstanding among Americans. He is a lightning rod of our ruptures, but for several years, he's also been acknowledging his own role in the damaged state we're in. How would you describe how you... What you do differently now editorially, you know, you you are still the same person. Yes. Um, you know, I do think I would I would say I would use the word repenting. I think you have done some public repenting, um, but you still have very strong political convictions, which are not, you know, which everybody is not going to agree with. And some people will disagree sure. with violently. Um, but can't we hopefully not violently, but can't we? Yeah. I want to get back to a place where. I mean, how is it that who we voted for is all we are? I have so much in common with, I mean, Samantha B is the best example. I watch Samantha B, and I watch her exactly as the way she probably used to watch me. I watch her <laughs> with my hand over my mouth going, Sam, don't you know what this is doing to half the country? Half the country is going to hate you for this. And so... Um, but we've gotten to know each other. Mm-hmm. I sincerely like her. She's really nice. We have so much in common. It's a, I, I, I really you you went on her show, and it's a very, very funny. Um, you were there both as this soul-searching person you are with me, but also as a performer, um, yeah. as a comedian, really. Um, I mean, one of the things she said is, in case you haven't heard, Glenn Beck is acting really weird. This was her introduction. And, and she <laughs> said to you, my audience wants to kill me for normalizing a lunatic like yourself. Um, she said, She said to you, for people in my world, even if all you said for the rest of your life were reasonable things— feel like you've still earned a permanent side-eye from them. And you you kind of took that. I can understand it. Mm-hmm. I, I can understand it. And I, I hope that one day um, somebody on the left can also come out, and those also on the right, too. I don't mean to single out just the left, but somebody like Sam can come on my show and I can say to her, you know, the things you've said... My audience will always have a side eye to you. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that she would say, uh, you know, I understand that. And I, I kind of deserve that. And uh, I get it. But then at that point, you know, what do you do about it? So now how do you balance, you know, comedy at this point in American history? Mm-hmm. And I, I hope every thinking person with a microphone or a camera is thinking about every word they say and trying to figure out how do I bring my audience to a, a better place? And it's not reasonable to ask people just, well, then throw away your career and just stop doing that. Mm-hmm. But you, that's not reasonable. I have, I have 300 employees that count on me getting up every single day. That's not reasonable. Now, how do I change? How do I make this work 
so I don't flush the jobs of 300 people. Yeah. I mean, let me. so let me ask you about a, a specific way that I, th- I think you've had a change of heart. You had a pivot point, and this would be – this is interesting to me. After the shooting of the five police officers in Dallas, you started to shift your thinking about Black Lives Matter. And this is why it's interesting. Is it for a lot of people who were – opposed to Black Lives Matter or just disinterested or skeptical took that shooting of police officers in Dallas as further proof of that, right? So what? We how did, why did in, you have a different experience? <laughs> I'm in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. That's my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Texans do not screw around, especially when they come to our police officers. Um, and uh, you're right. A lot of people said, see, yeah. look. My staff was down covering that um, that um, uh, parade or march, and excuse me for calling it a parade, but that march. And um, uh, so when the shooting happened, the people who were marching along with my people went behind uh, cars and into alleyways, and they were in it together. So they went through that experience together, and they realized. In that experience, because they had a time to talk and to be there, and mm-hmm. and they talked for about an hour or two after, uh, and they realized we're exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And so I brought those people in that were with my staff. I brought them in. I think there were five of them, uh, ranging in age. And I said, so let's let's just talk. No, nothing off limits. Let's just talk. And we had a fascinating a conversation. And I realized what they're saying is our community is in trouble. Our community is in pain. Well, I understand that. I get that. Mm-hmm. And that we can unite on. Yeah. You know, you in On the Blaze, which is your, your would you say that's your primary platform now, which you founded? And just, yeah. Okay. So you were, yeah. you in 2016, you. At some point, said, "I want to apologize for being a catastrophist." Although I still, I think you still claim. Do you you claim that I am a catastrophist? Okay, I, <laughs> okay you I, are, okay. and you apologize for it. Oh yeah, yeah. But, so in that same post, you said, <laughs> "You know, we've got to stop scaring the kids because that's what we're doing. We're scaring the hell out of the children." And you know, Glenn, I have to say, you're because you, I've been following your your work, your show, your various shows and your website and your daily email for a, a while. And it's such a mix, right? Because there are these healing stories and these completely, these these juxtapositions and these relationships that you have, like you just told the story of Black Lives Matter with Riz Patel, um, that are so counter to the, you know, the Glenn Beck persona, the Glenn Beck concept of old. But there's also a lot that is scary. I mean, that that catastrophist uh, still comes that, through, and I, yeah, but wait, I'm just sharing. Gift, <laughs> gift of fear, gift of fear. There's nothing wrong with, uh, and and this is when you know people say, well, you you know you sell uh, disaster food. Yeah, you mean the same kind of food that I'm reading about now in for in uh, Variety about how all the Hollywood stars are stocking up with the food and building bomb shelters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I get it. Um, but I, to me, that's not uh, that's not part of being a catastrophist. What I'm what I'm trying to do is be more of a mile marker in going. You've passed the last exit. You know that, right? You should 
stop at the nearest safe point and turn the other direction um, because it's going to – the things that I said were coming, many of them are happening and we're in the direction of bad stuff. Prepare yourself now and be strong to stand against it and to be a beacon of light. Do you I, – I was going to ask you how – I mean, you, we mentioned a while ago that you converted to the LDS church. You're a Mormon. Um, it's an important part of your identity and your family. And um, I was going to ask you how your faith and your theology I, – I mean, I think I may just have heard it there, but – does your faith give a blessing on this, the catastrophist? Oh my gosh, no, no, no. I've, I've, I know I've done damage to um, really good people of of my faith. They are such good um, people that mind their own business and want to be left alone and just, you know. And uh, and I've, I've, uh, no. They don't like showboats, and I and. I just feel compelled to, to um, warn people of of what I see, and and unfortunately, I've I, I think I've made a lot of Christians look bad, and and a lot of people of faith look bad, and and um, you know I, I I will pay my price for that. Mm. Um, when I went to Fox that weekend, I met with my family, and I said, you know, I don't want to do this. And if I go there, this is going to change our life because it's so big and it's just going to, it's not going to be good. And uh, the family said, you know, I said, I believe these things are coming and I believe I have to warn people. Uh, are we all in? And, um, you know, my kids, my older kids voted on it and said yes. And I said, then if I go, you have to do one thing. Everybody in the family has to keep a diary because I know how the world will remember me. And you need to tell the truth to my grandchildren. That's not who Grandpa was. Um, mm-hmm. Because I knew that um, warning people never goes well. And then I really screwed it up on top of it. And I, I do what I feel I'm, I'm prompted to do. I take the stands that I do because I feel that I'm supposed to take those stands. Unfortunately, the framing of those stands, all me, that's where it gets screwed up. The presentation of that is all Glenn. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Glenn Beck. aware all through last year that whoever was going to, whoever had won in November the presidency, what was just laid bare are these fractures, the fact that we don't know each other, um, these just chasms among Americans, right? That we don't know our fellow Americans in every direction. You sound like a catastrophist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, but I mean, I right, right, but so, so you're worried and warning, yes. And then I'm asking, also as somebody in media, a different, a very different kind of arm of the media, and yet 
in media and seeing the imperfections and how like the old model is just not serving us all around the way things have been always have done. But how do you, what would you, you know, just thinking, you know, I always say anger is what pain and fear look like when they show themselves in public. Yes. Um, and that's all out on the surface all around. Um, and I'm, I'm really aware of the pain and fear beneath that. And I think you are too. Um, how are you thinking now about the work, not just of telling the truth and even making the truth dramatic enough that people pay attention to the danger, but to the work of healing? Or is that just not your calling? No, I think it is. I haven't figured out how to do it exactly yet and make it, um, for instance, we're, I mean, um, you know, I, I went down to the border, uh, what, two years ago when the border thing was really high. And my audience was so angry with me. Well, because, you were handing out toys and clothing and food to undocumented immigrants on the border. Yeah, uh, to the kids. And and my audience was beside themselves for about four weeks. And I kept trying to explain there's a difference between policy and principles we can agree on policy that, yes, they shouldn't be here. Yes, they should go home. But the principle is they're people and they're here. So now what? You know, we can argue about this in Washington, but we have to help people. We don't we, we have to stand by and see the need in people. Uh, you know, it wasn't it was never reported, but I think we sent like almost three million dollars down and. 18 or 19 semi-trucks full of food. And that money was all raised by my audience. That mm. once once you broke down and got past and said, look, don't, don't make this about politics. Let's make this about who are we as people. The next thing that we, we did was um, we have rescued 6,000, and it's probably, more, uh, probably closer to 6,500 or 7,000 refugees in Syria and Iraq. Um, and then right now I'm really working on a, on a project that I helped start called um, Our Rescue. It's uh, Operation Underground Railroad. Right, working on this global slave trade. How do you present that one? Yeah. I can't get anybody – I can't get anybody to look at that. Um, my audience – I can't find a way to make that palpable or, or not even um, safe enough – for people to watch it so they avoid it like the plague. We can change the world, but I've got to find a way to reach into people's hearts without uh, manipulating anything to get them to say, okay, I'll look at this. Um, and, And my calling now, I think, is to try to find a way back to the heart. Once the heart closes... The Bonhoeffers of the world lose. And do you feel that you've that hearts also get opened by being outraged? Because I'm right. Is that is that also that line you're walking? No, I don't think. No, I think outrage. Um, outrage is. You're right about anger. It, it is. It, it, it comes out from a place when you are afraid. Mm-hmm. And if you're afraid, your reason centers shut down. Mm-hmm. 
and I've made mistakes in the last year by um, being too forceful with my words where I should have said, talk to me. You mm-hmm. don't need to hear me. Talk to me. Tell me what you're feeling. I understand that because I do now. I understand what they're feeling and I understand what the Hillary Clinton people were feeling. Hmm. <laughs> what if you could. This, this makes me sound like a lunatic, doesn't it? No, no, it doesn't. It's <laughs> no. You know what I'm thinking of? Um, I I did a, a public conversation with Matt Kibbe, who's a libertarian. Oh, yeah, I know and, Matt. Yeah. And Heather McGee, who's a you know progressive activist. Mm-hmm. And I ended up at the end quoting, because um, what came to mind was, you know, quoting Walt Whitman, and actually I'm getting into my phone because I want to say it right. Um, you know, do I contradict myself <laughs> very well? I can, because I am large, I contain multitudes, and the fact is we all do, and you are just, you know, you're being very honest. You're you're laying this out there, your multitudes. Um, Can I tell you, but mm-hmm. we are all like this. Mm. We are all like this, and we want, for some reason, we want to put everybody else into this box. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. And I We're think, all like this. And I know, I think your critics would say that you've done that, and I think you're confessing that. I mean, do you understand why people are yes. confused by you? <laughs> yes, yes, uh-huh. yes. And I think, and I want to be really clear, mm-hmm. I accept responsibility for a lot of it, a lot of it, and all the big ones that I've spent two years talking about, mm-hmm. I take responsibility. Mm-hmm. But we all have to take responsibility as well for only listening to the clips, only listening with a hard heart. And I'm, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about people on the right and the left, mm-hmm. listening to people that don't agree with them or don't fit into that box immediately expecting the worst, immediately going, okay, I've heard, so I know, you You also are this. Right. No, maybe right. not. Right. Maybe they are, but maybe they're not. Yeah. So, so let me just end by asking, um, you know, I, I really want to believe, and I do believe that there's overlap between our audiences, you know, and, and my, my audience is not just a public radio audience anymore, but but even so, you know, we can get too narrow a vision of that and of your audience. But I would like for you to say, what would you like, um, you know, let's say people listening to public radio to know about your audiences as their fellow citizens that you think they don't know? This, this, this complexity that feels important to you that we hear, that we see. I don't, I, I don't want to assume that I know what your audience yeah, I not you. Know, yeah, so, but you know what I'm. I mean, I do. These are artificial so, constructs, and there's a grain of truth, and they're not the whole truth. But the, to that grain of truth. So, what I would say, if I were introducing two friends together, you guys aren't going to think you have anything in common, but all of the big things you do have in common. All of the big things. All of the, you know, there's there's no one in this within the sound of my voice that that doesn't believe in the freedom of speech, in the freedom to have your, your um, uh, private life not being snooped in, that, that you can live next to your neighbor and they can be different than you and they can believe different things and you could be an atheist and they could be a Christian and you could be best of friends. Um, there's nobody that I believe, that I know in my real life, that is 
is that kind of person that says, oh, well, I only want people like this. And I live in Texas. <laughs> we're so much alike and we're being defined. And I believe uh, whether people know it or not, being used and manipulated uh, and pushed into making caricatures of each other. My audience is, I really, truly believe, um, they are open-hearted people who, for the last eight years, have been really frightened. And if you will listen to them and get past the things that you think you understand, um, you will recognize many of those things you're frightened of, too. It's just different packaging. Hmm. You've also said, I mean, you... We talked about how you said, you know, when you say the last eight years, that's, you know, that's the Obama presidency. You've talked about being freaked out and a lot of people were freaked out. And this is something that's hard for people on the other side to understand. But you've also recently said that Obama has made you a better man. Um, What do you mean by that? What's that? I don't think we'd have the same conversation today that we um, had Uh, eight years ago Mm -hmm. Um, because of the um, things that have happened in my life um, because of the things that I've done both good and bad I'm a better person I've I've taken the good as I believe the imposter that it is and not taken that as a uh, as a badge of honor and I've taken the bad to heart enough to go is that true to be able to to grow um, if I could rewind the clock and keep the knowledge that I have? I'd be a totally different man than I was at Fox in 2008. I don't know what I would do if I still believed the same things that I, I, I did then and I do now. I don't know how I would present it, hmm. but I wouldn't do what I did. Hmm. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for this. It's um, There's nothing tied up in a neat bow here, and that is the way life is, right? It's one of those movies that it ends, and you're like, oh, I'm not sure I like the ending. And you're like, yeah, I know, but that's the way it is. <laughs> Glenn Beck now broadcasts on The Blaze, a multi-platform news and entertainment network he founded. He's the author of many books of fiction and nonfiction, including The Seven, Seven Wonders That Will Change Your Life. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, and Rick Sarwongchuk. Special thanks this week to Rabbi Erwin Kula for helping make this conversation possible. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include 
the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.